everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dalapena, and on this episode, I welcome Emmy Award-winning sports director and producer, Peter Steep, who many people would know if they're involved in the broadcasting industry through his work in minor league cricket season two, and... He's also synonymous with a lot of broadcasts that have been done out of the West Indies and other things inside and outside of America, including the Cricket All-Stars Tour that was in 2015. His expertise goes well beyond cricket into golf, tennis, on the U.S. Open Grand Slam tennis tournaments right outside of his home in Queens, New York. And he's done Olympic broadcasts. He's done a hell of a lot of work outside of sports as well. There's so many things that Peter Steep has done in his career that he has anecdotes score and he's sharing a lot of those on this interview in the podcast which is going to be split up into two episodes because his anecdotes are just that good stay tuned for the interview with peter steep but before we get to that i want to first thank the newest patreon subscriber the newest patriots crystal zins crystal thank you so much for becoming a patriot and if you haven't listened to crystal's interview and episode on the stars and stripes cricket podcast i encourage everybody to do so being born and raised in minnesota and getting into cricket over the last three years and she shared that story in episode 49 so if you haven't listened to that yet by all means go on to youtube spotify anchor fm apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, wherever you get the podcast subscribe and you can get the episode with crystal zins you can get this episode with peter steep and all other episodes in the stars and stripes cricket podcast catalog but crystal thanks again for your support on the podcast and if you have not done so go to patreon.com for as little as three dollars a month you can support the podcast and help keep it going on an episode by episode basis and peter steep is also a longtime supporter of the podcast is a patriot so thank you to peter thank you to crystal and thank you to everybody else who supports the podcast i also want to thank the sponsors of the podcast dream cricket they can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements anything you need bats helmets gloves pads jerseys go to dreamcricketstore.com now and get 15 percent off your first order dream cricket store also offers free shipping on all orders over 200 dollars so go to www.dreamcricketstore.com to take advantage of those great deals today Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is also sponsored by Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, go to www.moosastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. And also, Crick Buster. We're closing in now on the start of the T20 World Cup in Australia. It's under two weeks away from the first matches in the opening round, but there's still time. If you haven't booked your trip yet, Crick Buster is your one-stop shop. For everything to do with the men's T20 World Cup in Australia this October, Crickbuster is an ICC-designated official travel agent. So if you're a cricket fan living in the USA and you're thinking about going down there last minute, by all means, get in touch with Crickbuster. For all of your touring plans, visit www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. And now, part one of the interview with Peter Steep. Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm joined by Peter Steep, who, if you work in the cricket broadcasting industry, you would know his name very well, whether that's in America or well beyond that. Peter is director, producer, not just for cricket, hell of a lot of other sports too. We can talk about that. And he has led a very interesting life beyond cricket as well, which I've just discovered a little bit about sheep shearing, among other things. So, Peter, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you, Peter, or should I say um, the master of the man cat. I've had to put on pause yeah. all my screenshot and documentation to do this interview with you, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> You've been inundated with, uh, with, with people around the world lo loving your streams on, uh, on, on the man cat or the so-called man cat issue. <laughs> it's kept I, me busy. I, my favorite point that people keep bringing up in a lot of the responses man, this guy's got no life. He must be a virgin. <laughs> Go find a woman. <laughs> All right. Well, I am a cricket journalist. I am paid to do these things. This is my full-time job to do this kind of research and, and do these kind of things. And I am married with one daughter. So there is evidence that at least once in my life, yeah. I have... You've, you've been away from cricket, yes. I've been away from cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so I know you. I got to know you first uh, through my initial opportunities doing broadcasting commentary. It was at the Super 50 down in Trinidad, I believe, was the first That's time right. I met you down in yeah. November 2019. And we worked together on the minor league cricket broadcasts on Willow TV. So I know you through that, but you've been in the broadcast industry for decades, going on 30 years now. You're Australian, in case people couldn't tell from from here in your your initial. No, response. I don't have an accent. You do. You know. <laughs> yeah. you know, you're in Queens now, so so let me ask you, Queens, New York, just be specific. I, I wore no, my I Mets shirt Mets. just oh, for you, Peter, because I know I you're going to wear my Mets. Field. Yeah, I, that's an interesting story. When I first moved to the U.S. in 1988, my future mother-in-law figured that um, I should be immersed immediately into the local culture. She got me tickets for the Mets Dodgers game. That was the year that the Kirk Gibson home run, if you recall. Well it wasn't that match. For Mets fans, but, we remember yes. it as as the Mike Sosha series. Yes, the, yeah. the, the devastating and, uh Mike Sosha two home run game so, against Doc Gooden. And I live I live about two and a half miles from City Field or Shea Stadium, of course, as it was, as my wife still refers to it. And I became an instant Mets fan, not knowing the difference much then between Yankees or Mets. And I'm thinking back now, had she got me Yankees tickets, I might have been on the dark side all these years as a Yankees fan. So I was very grateful to her for providing Mets tickets and not Yankees tickets. Well, this is quite fascinating for me, talking to somebody who's a Mets fan who's never experienced winning World Series before. You know, you came in two years after the fact. That's and right. You've only known a heartbreak since yep. But I do laugh when I'm at a Mets game and the young fellas, you know, they hear me speaking. <clears throat> I don't sound like I come from Queens yet, I don't think. And they ask, they say, oh, what are you foreigners here doing, you know, pretending to be a Mets fan? And I say, how long have you been a Mets fan? And they go, oh, go, all my life. And I'll say, how long is that? He said, well, I'm 20. I go, well, I've been a Mets fan for 33 years now, and I still haven't seen them win the World Series. Close-ish close in, close in 2000. And 2015 was a huge disappointment against the Royals for me. But, yeah. That was you know, well, too much. And that was the year we did the, uh, the cricket at, at City Field. That's, that's another right. story. That, that <laughs> well, yeah. And almost, yeah. you know, if you look at the dates, most people think on a traditional year for the Mets because they've, they've not been to the playoffs quite often over the, the span of the last 30 years. You could usually say, like, oh, well, you, you can get away with scheduling the, the cricket all-stars in mid-October because the Mets aren't going to go to the playoffs and they go to the World Series that year. So you, you had yeah. no choice. You had to wait until the yeah. World Series ended before you could do the game at City Field. So game five, was it? Game six at City Field 
it was to be played on the Sunday. We were supposed to be playing the first match of the three-match series the following Saturday. And the Mets organisation we'd been dealing with for quite a while about setting up for cricket and some of the meetings were quite interesting when the uh, the ground supervisor in the first meeting when we describe what we do he'd say you're going to do what to my field uh, we were going to bring semi-trailers and cranes into the middle of the city field to put a drop-in pitch in there and of course that was to be done we had the trucks waiting outside the city limits of new york on that sunday night waiting to know whether there was going to be another match and uh, that according to the rules of hauling the the pitch that was being brought in on the truck they weren't allowed to come into the city limits before a certain time of the day because of traffic restrictions so they were hovering outside the area of, of city field and we ended up bringing them in at you know two o'clock in the morning after the match had finished and started preparing to to dig up the ground to put the pitch in and for people who don't know that drop in wicket was being prepared in indianapolis so this That's is quite right. extensive operation to drive yeah. it from Indianapolis and Indiana, basically a thousand miles east to get yeah. it to New York City. And then only to be told, according to you, you're not yeah. allowed to enter the city limits. You got to wait yeah. outside. That's right. So they were driving around for hours. So waiting to be called to say, yes, now you're now you're permitted to come in and, uh, and commence this this duty. It was uh, it was quite something. Um, and I remember when the, the players, as we had them gathered, they wanted to practice on it, of course, because this whole new idea that of these players being brought together for this series as a showcase for cricket in the United States, they were really concerned about the surface that they were going to play on because they were told they were going to be playing on a, in a baseball ground. And uh, they were really concerned about it. So we had the week it was put in on the Wednesday, but it was finished on the Wednesday. They could come practice on the Thursday and we're out there. They put nets around the, the actual wicket and they were bowling on it and watching Shoah Bakhtar bowling on that thing and Kirtley Ambrose. I mean, it was just like still an eye opener for me, just thinking back on it. And Ricky Ponting came up to me and said, Well, you guys have done a pretty good job. And I said, it wasn't me. It was this <laughs> this gentleman here, they are the famous Kiwi who uh, who built the wickets. And he also built Peter Wicket for the for the Minute Maid Park ground in Houston, as well yeah. as a separate one for Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. So it went really well, and uh, it's just a pity that it uh, kind of petered out after that. But uh, we were we were just surprised at the the gathering of the talent there. It was a super galaxy of cricket talent. Yeah, Mark Parham, he was the curator from New Zealand. Yeah. He came in. He had done work previously in the U.S. He had helped get the facility in Indianapolis up and running the actual cricket facility there, not the indoor facility yeah. where he was doing the drop and wicket preparation, but there's a separate facility called world sports bark on the East side of Indianapolis. And That's he was right. heavily involved in the design and the cultivation of that facility, the outfield and the square itself. And it's a shame that that facility doesn't get used anymore. Cause I felt it was one of the best facilities. Uh, obviously, you know, the baseball grounds aren't the ideal um, venues for cricket, but at the time, they needed places where they could attract a, grant, a crowd to yeah. kind of pay for it. Now, really, we looked at everywhere around the US, you know, at various grounds, but the baseball ground seemed to be the place place to do it. And funnily enough, the, the people at City Field were really good, but they wouldn't let us 
remove the pitcher's mound. So it was covered over with a logo, tarped, a tarped logo. Now, in Minute Maid Park, they didn't care. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, you can move it. So it was quite interesting seeing the attitude towards what we were doing from the different grounds that we played it on. Well, you have to keep in mind at that point in time, you know, the Mets were in the World Series. The Mets were the best team in the National League. They won the pennant. People forget this. At that point in time, the Astros were the worst team in baseball. Yeah. So, you know, in really a short space of time, in the space of three years, basically, they went from being one of the worst teams in baseball to being a World Series winner and a consistent winner, a a team appearing in the World Series. With the help of certain cameras. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They they had a little bit of sleight of hand there. (laughs) But the point is, the mentality changes. When you're a last place team and you're losing 100 games, like they were in the early part of the 2010s, you don't, yeah, you don't yeah. mind so much if people are are altering your field if it brings in revenue. It's, you know, the, the people at City Field. It was the funny thing was we go out to do a survey where I had to walk around the outfield to, um, or the, you know, the track, the, the warning track to 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 know where we're going to put the cameras. And I went to step out onto the grass to look back to get a perspective view, and the security guys there said, "You are not permitted to set foot on." this grass unless you're a major league player and I went okay well you don't know what's going to happen here later in the week when we're doing clinics for 300 kids but anyway that was another story too um it it seems like that now it's very weird the progression over the years because I remember when I was a kid me and my brothers I got two older brothers and my dad we used to take these road trips every year where my dad uh, would take some time off from the family construction business and he would take us out to see a different major league baseball stadium every summer. And we would put other things into these trips as well. So one year we went out to Chicago and we saw games both at the new Comiskey Park, as it was called at the time. Yeah. It was the, the very first year that the new Comiskey Park had opened. And we saw games at Wrigley Field as well. But on the way there, we stopped at Notre Dame and we did a, a kind of a tour of Notre Dame and we went out onto the football field there. And at the time, you know, this is early 90s and going into the field at Notre Dame Stadium, this hallowed, revered thing and you're going to see Touchdown Jesus and all that. Yeah. You could walk onto the field. There was like no security. Nobody cared. Um, There were other people there. I mean, there wasn't like hundreds, but, you know, there was like a half dozen of us who we were just generally curious. And we walked out onto the field. We walked into the end zone and, you know, we pretended like we played for Notre Dame. We just scored touchdown or whatever. And nobody cared. It's like, oh, all right, these yeah. people are just walking on the grass. Fast forward now, you know, to the to the 2010s, and they're very, very fussy and particular about it because there's so many millions, yeah. hundreds of millions poured into these. Yeah, there's a lot of money there. And I, I remember the US under 19 team last summer or summer 2021, they had a training camp in San Francisco, Santa Clara. And as part of the training camp, they were invited to Levi's Stadium for a day. Mm-hmm. And because Prague Marate, who was the vice president of the 49ers, was also the chairman of the USA Cricket Board at the time, wanted to welcome the players to where the oh. San Francisco 49ers play. So they went to Levi Stadium. And I was there to take photos for the team on the day and cover the event. And what you said just happened. Same thing. They get shown in the locker room. They get shown the yeah. other parts of the underneath the stadium, all this kind of behind the scenes stuff. And then some PR staff instruct everybody as we're walking out onto the field 
before we could get to the field, we never actually set foot on the field because what happened? Well, you just said we get out of the tunnel. The, the guys are like really excited to think like, oh, we're going to walk onto the field to play Levi Stadium yeah. and like pretend we're going to be 49ers. One, one of the players, he puts one foot on the edge yeah. of the end zone grass. Not, not even like the end zone itself. We're not even talking about the field to play end zone. He's not even on the grass that leads to the uh, end zone painted white lines that mark off the end of the end zone or in the grass before that. And in the grass, before you get to the white line part of the end zone, a couple of security officials stop and say, hold on a second. Yeah, no. yeah. You cannot set foot on this grass. This is protected. And the, any part of the grass, I mean, they treat it yeah. as, as an investment. They're extremely and, serious about it. Yeah. <laughs> Do not touch or else yeah. we will sick the guard dogs on you. Well, I wanted to show, I wanted, I was hoping that that same person that pulled me up that day was going to be there later in the week because we literally had a couple of hundred kids there from various schools around New York City doing clinics with some of these great cricketers. Yep. And City Field was covered with people. And uh, so I thought it was a little bit odd that, you know, two days before I wasn't allowed to set foot on the grass because it was hallowed ground for uh, major league players only. And of course, I didn't quite make major league level. Yeah. This, yeah, this, is, where, <laughs> this is where Benny Agbayani once ran around. <laughs> We, that's right exactly yeah and and of course then the pepsi the pepsi sign in right field yeah was this you know one of the landmarks of new york city at, at the time the pepsi and, porch uh, yeah yeah pe pepsi porch and of course we were out there practicing we were doing a little we were doing pieces for uh, with uh, with with maddie hayden and andrew simons and they were hitting balls over the pepsi sign so the city field people were like aghast they thinking oh man this is good so they had to go out and take another five million dollars worth of insurance out on that on that on that pepsi sign because they were worried that it was going to get hit with cricket balls so it had never obviously no one ever gets near it playing baseball but you got guys get like you know andrew simons as you know can uh, can launch them so that was an interesting aspect of it too. They had no idea how hard these guys hit the ball. And if you think about it, just from a, a contextual standpoint, in a baseball game, you might clear it a couple times a game. And in batting practice, you you know, at that point in time, Yoannis Cespedes was like the king of the Mets yeah. that season and when they went to yeah. the World Series. And so, you know, you go to batting practice, you see Yoannis Cespedes trying to hit however many home runs in batting practice and you've got fans out there but you've got you know you've got people intercepting these objects all trying to catch a home yeah. run ball and so yeah. the actual prospect of their being damaged to the facility doesn't really exist whereas if it's no. in an empty stadium in a training session like that all of a sudden and or or in a game itself where yeah instead of it being you know one or two or three or four home runs over the course of a game if the boundaries are short because the cricket dimensions are different and you've got 15 20 36s potentially yeah. providing damage to the structures <laughs> it makes sense that they they might need to take out extra insurance well minute Maid park was slightly different if people watching this who are familiar with minute Maid park know that every time there's a home run hit there there's a guy out there in this little train that goes backwards and forwards um you know celebrating the uh the, the home run so they just th they thought it'd be a cool idea to do that Every time one of our guys hit a six, so I remember all, he was busy. It, he was very, very. Yeah, busy. it all went off. It thing broke down halfway through the match because <laughs> there were so many sixes being hit. So uh, that was interesting. They, we, I think we broke the train. 
Yeah. I, and I, I remember that as well. That, yeah. After a certain point in time, the train was not going back and forth yeah. for each city. Didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to the city field, though. Yeah. So one of the early points you, you touched on, they realized kind of midway through the week that this is not usual. And, and one of the things you said was about the pitcher's man and how they were very protective of the yeah. pitcher's man and what to do with that. I mean, there are a lot of events that happen at Shea Stadium and City Field yeah. that has taken the place of Shea Stadium since 2008, 2009. But, you know, there are plenty of non-baseball events that happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, all well, now the, the New York City Football Club plays there now. Well, there's that. But, you know, yeah. you can at least theorize that as that being, a, you know, a sanctioned sporting yeah. facility. And, and also, you know, if you look at Yankee Stadium, they have the New Era Pinstripe Bowl every year, the college football game that gets yeah, right. yeah. to, to play on, uh, at Yankee Stadium on the outfield. But other events that that could in theory you know damage the field of play yeah. right mm. all sorts of concerts you know how are many billy joel concerts there have been yeah, over the years that's in, right. that stadium, in addition yeah. to god knows how many other acts but you know there's all sorts of horror stories you hear whether it's rolling stones concerts or other events where there's sixty thousand people who are not in the seats you've got 10,000, 15,000 out of those people who are on the, the grass and like yeah. close to the stage VIP section. And if it rains, it's just mayhem. They just, the, the weight of the people and the, the spectators on, on the field of play during yeah. a concert can just wreck everything there. So logistically, from that standpoint, when you talk about the pitcher's mound being protected and all that, from your knowledge yeah. of what how you were involved in the event, kind of in a, a production sense, what were the challenges and, and differences that were, I guess, similar to any other sporting event versus how it kind of compared and related to something like a, a Billy Joel concert or a, a non-sporting event that were causes of concern and, and challenges that needed to be catered to to tr- make the Cricket All-Stars event happen? Well, in terms of covering it production-wise, because we this. Thing. It went all over the world and we were dealing, I think the main problems I had was dealing with the guys in India about how we were going to produce it. But in terms of covering it as a cricket event per se, it, there were no problems at all. Many of the, we, we had to make some slight adjustments in some of the, where we could put the cameras, but it, essentially it was just like a normal coverage. The, one of the challenges was to let the people at City Field know that we weren't going to be trying to damage anything. We weren't trying to present the venue in any other way than what it is, a great a great sporting venue. But in terms of the actual coverage itself in t- of, of a sporting event, it was fairly routine for us. Of course, the crew that I uh, assembled for it had decades of experience doing cricket. So it was just another venue for them. It was a little different in some of the setups, but uh, for all intents and purposes, it was um, it was just another another cricket series. In terms of it, like camera setups, you touched on there, right? So it, it's configured for baseball. The camera wells are positioned, yeah. you know, in, to be in line with the first baseline and third baseline to, you know, get down the line if there's a home run versus a foul ball or anything else that's a fair ball, foul ball scenario. And then you've got obviously the home plate camera. You've got the center field camera. Um, you've got some different cameras set up around the stadium. How much adapting did you need to do to try and, put on a production to get cameras in position so that they would be more amenable to your traditional cricket camera angles, whether that's side on or, or front. Well, the the normal uh, wicket to wicket and ball follow cameras at both ends. um, The only difference we found there was slight elevation difference. 
obviously when we set up for a, a regular ground we like to have both ends set up at the same elevation so that so that the look of the boulders you know, over the bowler's arm is the same from both ends we had a little bit of a difference there because the way it was set up in terms of the lineup of it it was fine the slips cameras which are traditionally at ground level on uh, normal coverage that was no problem we had to have them hard up against the wall uh, on one end actually we had them in the first row of the you know, of the viewing area rather than at ground level and uh, mid-wicket camera was fine there was because that is a it is a stadium we could kill seats if we needed to for our camera positions and the biggest challenge that we had trying to explain to the people there was the run out cameras because they don't have that traditionally that the need for cameras in those positions for uh, for baseball coverage of course so setting up the run out cameras was a, a little bit of a challenge but uh, in general um, the grounds themselves were quite amenable to or quite suitable for setting up cricket the problem was is that the, the dimensions of the grounds just don't fit properly for uh, proper cricket because you're playing cricket in the middle of the ground and it just makes the boundaries too short. But, you know, we had to make compromises to make it pay. So, for example, having bowlers at the same, sorry, having cameras at the same vantage point behind each bowler's arm. If you've got one, if the traditional one behind home plate is on like this, second or third level i know i know where the the city yeah. uh, the sny broadcast booth is third the, level at um, yeah it's right yeah. right below the uh, the broad the, the sny it's in like the mes yeah. mezzanine level uh, is yeah. where they are behind home play so it's like yeah. right next to the the rest of the media box they've got the sny booth and then they've got the cameras yeah. right there but from center field you've got a different vantage point if yeah well, it's a lower it's a lower there, look yeah it's, it's a much that your normal camera one and two coverage from baseball is is a lower elevation because as they're set up it's a standardized uh, throughout baseball at that at the you know looking from center field over the pitcher's arm um and it's not exactly behind unlike cricket it's not exactly behind the pitcher even though it may appear to some people watching baseball that it is but it isn't and so that level was slightly different we we tried to get as close as we could by not using that area and going up into the next level uh, which meant we had to kill some seats to try and match the elevation at the other end but you could hardly tell if you go back and look at the uh at, you know replays you, you could hardly tell the difference but you know that was a challenge on all the grounds particularly right. Do a dodger stadium yeah what, what and be, just because at dodger stadium in the outfield you don't have anything that's kind of elevated in the same sense that you do it no at, you don't that's minute, 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 minute. yeah and it seems much bigger it has a much bigger feel to it when you're in dodger stadium to me than uh, than city field at the time so uh but it's it's more it's, kind of how do i put it it's more sprawling yeah it is it is that's that's the way to put it um at the end the coverage of the cricket was fine as well we had no problem because of the uh, you know the lenses we use that, that's no problem at all we it was it turned out a much better look than we uh, with uh, kind of expected at the beginning all right so let me ask you this Go, going back to just your roots in new york what is it like being in New York City now for the last 34 years and also simultaneously living this very intense life in the cricket broadcast world. I mean, when you're away from tours and back in New York City, do you kind of enjoy the anonymity that being in a climate yeah. where <laughs> there's no cricket to, to kind of greatest city in the world to be anonymous is new york city that's uh, there's no doubt about it i love to go down to cunningham park which is only a mile away from my house and i can sit there and have a beer and watch 
watch the guys play cricket on the weekend in social matches or take a walk or a bicycle ride over to, uh, you know, Flushing Meadows in Corona and watch cricket there. Um, my wife, uh, who's from Queens, has to put up, has had to put up with a lot of my cricket travails over the years, but she rests warmly with the knowledge that my mother, when she first met her, and uh, we were watching cricket at my house in Australia, and uh, of course, my wife Gail had knew nothing about cricket, and my mum told her that she had a dispensation from our family that she didn't need to learn about it. So she's she's still living on that 34 years later. But the culture of New York, I mean, start off by saying, yeah, you can be anonymous in New York, but then you just pivoted straight to, oh, I can go to, to Corona Park, uh, Flushing Meadows Park, Cunningham Park. Literally, I mean, right outside City Fields, everybody thinks of Flushing Meadows Park as the home of the U.S. Open for tennis, Grand yeah. Slam tennis. Right. But literally, you walk outside the U.S. Tennis Center, you walk past that big globe, which everybody is remembers as being synonymous with the World's Fair back in 19. That's right. Right. And literally, like 50 yards beyond that, there's, yeah, there's cricket matches everywhere. There's cricket, there's yeah. cricket fields everywhere. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> well, people are astonished to find out that New York City alone has 120 clubs, separate clubs. They think, how is that possible? But it's all play. Cricket play is played, obviously, uh, at social level, and it very rarely goes beyond that. Have you ever played in New York? I've played in New York, sure, yeah. We, when I first moved here, we used to play all the time. We actually played in Central Park. We had my first cricket match in the U.S. was in Central Park in New York. We had a, the Australian consulate used to put on a, you know, it was really an excuse to get together for a few beers with the guys. And we, we used to play against um, various other consul generals teams. And we ended up having um, an annual match against the Marion Cricket Club. Yep. which was always good. And we ended up going down there more than they came to New York because for obvious reasons, Marion Cricket Ground is a, is a lovely place to play cricket. And I'm very, very fortunate. And I love to tell my cricket family back home that my photo, my team photo of playing cricket hangs in a wall just about 20 metres down the hall in Marion from photo of Don Bradman playing at the same ground. So I was pretty happy to be in that company. Even I mean, though I made, uh, I think I made two not out, and uh, and the last time I played there, and and I think no, the last time I played there, I was run out without facing the ball. So, uh, you know, <laughs> that that's that was my my level of uh, of expertise. But but to play at a place like Marion, which again has a lot of cricket history, uh, is remarkable. And you know the the university that was, it's attached to um, uh, Villanova, right? Villanova has a has an association there's the library there the cricket library well you've got yeah Haverford so Haverford College Haverford College Haverford College I'm sorry the um, historians of cricket in the UK send people there to do research on cricket people don't realize that the extent of cricket in the country and and of course it's fairly common knowledge that the first international match between the US and Canada that gets bandied around a lot but apart from that there is a lot of cricket in the US well that you referenced playing the with and against Marion. So that match, I'm fairly certain that it still goes on in some capacity. There's a consulate does, yeah. team. Yeah. Yeah. Where they get a team that visits from Philadelphia. Sometimes it's the British Officers Club. Sometimes it's yeah. Marion. Sometimes it might be a different team from Philadelphia. But that match with a consulate team against the consulate team in New York still takes place to this day. 
And yeah. but again, you know, touching on Marion, there's so much history, cricket history and, and cricket culture in, yeah. in Northeast New York and Philadelphia in particular. I mean, Marion, and it's linked to so many other sports too. I talked about Corona Park having the cricket fields literally within walking distance of the yeah. US tennis center. And at Marion, right? Marion is this gorgeous facility for people who haven't been there or haven't heard of it. Uh, it's got this magnificent pavilion. And it's it's like white glove service. Yeah. The the MCC had a tour there in 2016 where they had the MCC women's team, and Charlotte Edwards was part of the MCC women's team that toured to play against the USA team, and they played at Marion. And I remember Charlotte Edwards saying that she thought it was just like going to Wimbledon. I mean, because yeah. you, you had not just the cricket field there in front of the pavilion, but you've got these lawn tennis courts and you've got all these other courts. And you go inside the pavilion, and again, it's, it's white glove service. Like you got there's a well, it is really there. a tennis club when it uh, when it boils down to it, because that's the way they make their money, Peter. Yeah, the, the majority um, of the we year were, we were allowed yeah. we were allowed to play our matches in the spring because before they closed off the area for cricket, so that they could convert them for grass court tennis for the rest of the summer. Yeah, so that they could charge charge the members. So it was really more it's become more of a tennis facility than a cricket facility but still playing on it it's like a billiard table playing on it the surface is beautiful to to, to bat on and field on it. so that's absolutely lovely and philadelphia cricket club is the same way so philadelphia cricket yeah. club marion cricket club you can play for i think it's either five or six weeks in the spring and five or six weeks in the yeah. fall yeah. they have it set up for cricket but then the rest of the summer the membership wants it converted for lawn tennis courts so this magnificent outfield that's cut so low and lush for cricket, even though they have, they have it, uh, they would use a matting strip. So they use the coconut tube matting yeah. to put down for a cricket wicket. They don't have an actual square shape down, but yeah. they do that also to protect it for the lawn tennis. But for the majority of the summer, it's lawn tennis courts that they put in there for the outfield to, for use. The, the major league cricket, the major league cricket people had us, um, uh, we went down last year to uh, do a survey there to do as, to look at as a possible venue for a, for a demonstration match for the upcoming major league season. And uh, we went through all the motions of, you know, setting out how we would do what we would need, all the logistics and it came back, um, just turned out a little bit too expensive for them to uh, to pay the freight on for, for one day that they wanted to charge. But um, it would have been a nice place to do it, but um, I don't think they obviously needed the, uh, the attention. Oh yeah, it's, it's it's a vice versa proposition. They didn't need it. Yeah. You know, cr cricket would have loved to yeah. have it. They could have yeah. had it. Major League Cricket would have loved it. Yeah, because again, it's literally right across the street. You've got Marion Golf Club, which was it four or five years ago. It's it's part of the rotation for hosting yeah. U.S. Open. Twenty third teams, the last one. Yeah, yeah. Right. So Justin they, Rose won. Yeah. So they've got U.S. Golf, uh, U.S. Open golf major championships that they host there. That you know. Yeah. Anybody who knows golf would know Marion. And in fact, yeah. I, I stayed with somebody uh, in Glasgow and I was working on the broadcast for the Nepal, Namibia, Scotland series in Glasgow at Titwood this summer. The Airbnb host I stayed with, I was in a, a place literally overlooking the ground at, at Titwood in, in Clydesdale on that part of Glasgow. And I just had to walk out 30 feet uh, outside my Airbnb to, to get to the cricket ground daily for the ICC TV broadcast. But my host was a huge golf guy. And, and when I was there, it was the same weekend as the open championship that was at St. Andrews. So we had the golf on constantly. And I was asking about, you know, where he's been in the U S to golf. And he said his favorite place that he had played golf at in America, the two that he said, Baltusrol 
which is also yeah. in, in part of the rotation. Balthus Rawls in New Jersey. 1993 U.S. Open. Yeah. Yep. And Marion. He said he's played yeah. the course at Marion. So when I met, you know, I mentioned to him about cricket and all that, he knew exactly where Marion Cricket Club is yeah. because he'd been to play at Marion right, Golf, Golf Club across the street. Yeah. So there's there's so many links like that that are yeah. kind of tangential links or on slightly just on the periphery. Yeah. Where if you're involved in the sports culture in the U.S., if you got if you got your eyes open, you'll see where the links are with cricket and how closely linked and how how many ties and rubbing shoulders moments I, you know I, and it's thing it's it's a shame that it hasn't kicked on a bit because i've been asked about cricket in the u.s ever since i've lived here and i've been involved in some of the efforts to um you know to get it to a to you know to to reach a broader audience but my my opinion on it is that until the kids are playing it in the street or in their backyard or at school they will, they will struggle in the u.s i mean I'm, I'm the biggest fan of promoting the game as as there is in this country but you can't just rely on expat population to keep the game going here. You know, it has to be homegrown support. And gradually, I think that will happen, but they'll always struggle. But, but and the other surprising things is the pockets of cricket that you do find. I mean, having done the minor league for two seasons now, last year when we first did that first final in, in Morrisville, I was talking to the guys down there. And there's, there's 10,000 registered players in that triangle cricket league down there. I mean, it's astonishing. And they'll, they'll have up to 2,500 kids a week in clinics. People don't realise the, you know, the extent of the, uh, the support in those local areas. But outside that area, people don't know about it. But that's part of the problem in bringing it to a wider audience. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. Dream Cricket Store can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements. Anything you need. Bats, helmets, gloves, pads, jerseys, and more. Go to DreamCricketStore.com now and get 15% off your first order. Dream Cricket Store also offers free shipping on all orders over $200. Again, go to www.DreamCricketStore.com to take advantage of that great offer today. This episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now the first ODI accredited venue in the Lone Star State, located at 5515 McKeever Road, County Road 100 in Pearland. Five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288, a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Musa also has two nursery grounds on the north side of the stadium boundary available for use. For more information, visit www.musastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is also sponsored by Crickbuster. Based in Florida, Crickbuster is an ICC-designated official travel agent for the 2022 ICC Men's T20 World Cup in Australia. If you're a cricket fan living in the USA and you need match tickets, flights, hotels, stadium tours, or want to organize other sightseeing activities down under this October, Crickbuster is a one-stop shop for all of your touring needs. Visit www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. And now back to the episode. New York City is is one place where they're trying or they have historically tried. I mean, they they've had the PSAL High School League going there now for fifteen yeah. years since two thousand. Thanks to Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, former Police Commissioner Ray Kelly coming out to support yeah. 
PSL and, and the NYPD cricket. I mean, so it wasn't just like a, a half-assed thing that they just did um, just to placate a few people. You had like prominent people in the sure. political community coming out to support. I mean, yeah. Ray Kelly, like, at yeah. least at that point in time for me, that was like, it was like, gee, whoa, yeah. Ray Kelly, yeah. this is... Yeah, it's, it's the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> Ray Kelly's showing up for the cricket. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like uh oh, like I got to be here for you know they weren't like checking the watch. You know, how long do I have to be here? Come on, you know what, what was it? The yeah, uh, he wasn't the, looking for the next appointment. The yeah. George Bush presidential debate in two thousand four, whatever. He's like looking at his watch. <laughs> He's got somewhere to get paid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was not, there was none of that. The, Ray Kelly was there. It yeah. wasn't like oh come on, have I met my time? Let's go. He stayed. They had like a media scrum where he answered some questions. And after that, in theory, he could have left, but he stayed and he kept on watching the match and he was quite engaged. And when I talked to him, so many people are when they start watching how how engaged they do become. Well, and and when I talked to him, the chance that I got to speak with him for a few minutes, you know, I asked him, you know, what do you think this, you know, and I I was kind of naive or uh, almost. I'm guilty of being condescending about it. I was like, oh, what do you think of this? Or, you know, you know, what do you think of what's going on here? He says, uh, this isn't my first time. He's like, I've been to plenty of cricket matches before. He's like, I love it. Like, I know what's going on. Like, you don't need to do that. So, I was like, whoops, so there was a, just there made was a fool of myself in front of Ray Kelly. There's a, yeah, that's right. There's a latent uh, following then, if you will. I mean, back in 2004, I was approached to do that. The American Pro League. I don't know if you remember that. Pro cricket, the, of course. The American Pro cricket. And of course, you know, I thought, what are these guys trying to do? These minor league grounds, and so I went and produced those. And uh, well, the East, I, I, I could do the games on the East, not not. And then I that was had it. Guy help they me played at the, uh, the Somerset Patriots Stadium. Yeah, and we also played at the Yankee Stadium in Staten Island. Staten Island Yankees. Yep, the uh, yeah. Richmond Bank Ballpark. Yeah. and uh, what a great location. But again, because it's a small baseball field, it's not ideal for cricket. But Again, it was a good idea, fairly poorly executed at the time. Uh, you know, they had a few expat um, players from national teams. Colin Miller was there, and uh, uh, I think Franklin Stevenson came up from the West Indies. And there was a, there were a few, you know, Mervyn Dillon. Mervyn Dillon was there. Oh, Merv Dillon. Yeah. And, Robin Singh. Uh, Robin Singh played in it. Robin Singh, he did too. And the, the problem with um, that league was at the time, they'd set up a, a what was called the Desi Network, they were trying to uh, have as the expat subcontinent people living in the US to cater to them news, current affairs, you know, soap operas from home, sports, which of course needed to be in cricket. So they really good idea to have, have it to start up a franchise cricket league. But their idea of marketing at the time, the, the owner of the league or one of the guys involved with the league owned a series of supermarkets in New Jersey. And his idea of marketing was putting the dates of the matches on the bags and the paper bags where you put your groceries. That was how that was marketed. And it was, it was a shame because, you know, they had a commissioner and it was, that was supposed to be funded for three years. And after the first year, it just went poof. So they did the and then of course everyone, everyone that rolls their eyes and says, you know, cricket will never make it. And, you know, and then someone else tries to do it. And some of the less, less uh, reliable shall we say people get involved um, in years following that and so, so they know, did an xfl them, they, they yeah, tried to do yeah. a vince mcmahon we'll, we'll do the xfl for three years yeah. and after year one they pulled the plug yeah that's like that's just, just such a shame and that's why it's gratifying to be part of 
this this organization now that's um, that's you know doing minor league and major league cricket i think they're in much better hands now than they have been in the past so that's gratifying well pro cricket i'm going to go back to this so at that point in time, I was not involved in, in cricket community at that point. I, at that point in time, when pro cricket was happening, I was either a student at a Creighton University out in Nebraska. I was working in the – I was working Creighton basketball games or Creighton baseball games for the College World Series, or I was in Australia doing my semester abroad uh, around 2004, 2005. So I had no concept of cricket in New Jersey or anywhere else for that matter in America. What do you remember about that point in time in terms of the broad-scale attempts – to launch a pro cricket league and why you feel more than anything else, it failed, it failed generally, the, the operation failed and, and kind of, kind of big picture why it failed to catch on in kind of a, a sporting sensor just to within the cricket community itself, it wasn't really supported. Well, I, they appeared to have some support financially to start with, but I, I don't think they looked broadly enough. I don't think they looked at it as a bigger picture and I think that was to their detriment I guess you could say they didn't aim high enough I don't think though I think they were happy just to do it to make it like a regional uh, event even though they had teams down you know they had four teams on the east and four teams on the west uh, in theory it never felt like it was much more than local cricket local cricket just turned up a little bit on the volume and I think that was part of the problem and the, uh, the the guys running it weren't thinking big picture and it had they had some good advice at the time it may have worked better uh, they had a little bit of a splash when it, when it was first launched but it came out of the blue to me I got a phone call from a guy in England asking me if I could put a, the a TV cruise together I said sure I can do that but for what you know how come I haven't heard about this and you know, to hear about it from someone in England was was that kind of shows you that there was there wasn't not a lot of um, news about it in this country. So, like I said, it was a shame that it didn't go further. But you know, I think the way it was executed was they didn't have the right people running it at the time. I think it can be boiled down to. But in terms of say, I mean, if you look at minor league cricket now, there are some people who would say the same thing that it, it's very localized in terms of the way the franchises are and the locations and all that, but there has been some measure of success comparatively speaking. And I'm curious why you think there has been success compared to pro cricket when in some ways the approaches in terms of outreach and recruitment and, and who is actually featuring the teams themselves has in a lot of ways been quite similar. Well, it, it, it may appear to be similar. I think it, it may be partly because the, the people involved are probably more serious about the way their resources are used um, than, than perhaps they were in the pro cricket days. And I think the overall structure of the league has much better organisation than they had done. It was like, it was the, as we used to say in Australia and England, it was back of a fag packet, you know, plan yeah. back in 2004. But this time around, you know, with the people that they've employed and the strategic plan that they've set forward to, you know, roll out major league cricket, I think is vastly different to the way it was planned back in 2004. And I think there are a lot more, there are a lot better people involved in terms of organisation. I'm sure they have problems, you know, at franchise level. I and mean, in my opinion, there are too many teams. Yeah. You don't need 27 teams. And I agree you know, with that. But, 
but uh, all the guys that are willing to to pony up the money to to buy a franchise were were willing to exactly do that. So I think it's a little bit unwieldy the size of it, and we know we found that out a little bit this year the way we covered our our premium streams. But you know it was it's still I don't think the structure is the problem at the moment. I still think the main the main issue in the U.S. of course is uh, venues appropriate venues. Well, but on that point, I would say minor league cricket is in much better position than pro cricket ever was. I mean, if, if yeah, pro cricket, sure. yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, pro cricket, none of the matches were played on natural turf cricket wickets, nah. right? Nah. So it was all, yeah, minor league or, you know, yeah. San Francisco, they had Kizar Stadium they used as, which is yeah. like nowadays is a track and field venue, I think, and used to yeah. be where the 49ers played way back when. But, you know, if you compare that now, just in terms of the infrastructural landscape, whether MLC and ACE have, invested in it or prior to their arrival you know you've got places like morrisville which ace and mlc have not had any involvement with prior to the launch of minor league cricket or major league cricket that was there starting in 2014 2015 um so that's yeah. a decade after pro cricket you've got this wonderful facility that's been constructed in morrisville which is good enough to host the finals weekend and back-to-back yeah. years you've got the facilities in in houston in Pearland, and then out in prairie view and you know even so you know it's it's not perfect right you've got it's and it's not universal where you've got turf wickets you know philadelphia doesn't have one in the midwest st louis doesn't have one you've got some other venues they don't have the new york venues the new york franchises they don't have well the climate you know you you can't have those the turf wickets to be surviving as properly i mean you can keep them alive over 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 winter but i mean it's a hard thing to do with when the cricket isn't played at the proper uh, you know the upper level constantly um it's you know it's an investment in funds again you know uh, the, the turf wickets are going to obviously thrive more in the uh, in the in the places with a better climate that suits that so I, I don't think they'll ever get around that problem well but i you say that i i always disagree with this point though because last time i checked it snows in england it snows in melbourne yeah it snows in other parts of the world where it snows yeah in but it snows it's not the snow peter it's the uh it's that hard hard freeze but and, and that's for a long period of time, you know. There's, but you, you have, don't get that in England. You have well, yeah, no, you don't get. You get maybe yeah. in Scotland a little bit, not, not quite. Yeah. yeah. But, but you do have variable weather conditions. Is the point, and yeah. people it needs expertise, right? You, you can't just yeah. have Joe Schmo looking after the wickets. You need somebody who's who's got an expertise yeah. in looking after the soil content and the grass and all that, which is yeah. challenging. It and it costs money, and and that's that's a problem, obviously. But, you know, things like even even with those challenges in minor league, we're not every uh, location. It's it's not universal. That there's turf. Available. One of the things I like they did this year was that Fourth of July weekend where they just scheduled yeah. uh, around holiday weekend where they just told everybody you're all flying to Houston or you're Houston. all flying to North Carolina. And we're going to do kind of a festival type weekend where. Yeah build a production around it but also yeah just to force people to say all right this is this if this is the highest standard league that's going to be played we're going to try and get as many matches played in the highest standard facilities so they force everybody to go there and i thought it was a great initiative just to to build it around a holiday weekend yeah. but also just just to show a little bit of out of the box thinking and creativity that to say this is something we're trying to do to to change the culture of cricket and how it's played and, and why it's played and where it should be played and i would like to see more things like that done it just just kind of to do 
again, around the holiday weekend, whether that's Labor Day weekend or Fourth of July yeah. weekend or Memorial Day weekend, stuff like that, to do kind of a focused impact kind of event type thing like that. And hopefully that'll encourage the local yeah. to say like, well, if Morrisville can do it and if Paraland can do it, there's nothing stopping New York. Or, you know, why, why can't New York do it? At the end of the day, I, while those one-off weekends are good, I, I feel like the converse model that you see Global T20 Canada do, where you see some of the other franchise leagues do, where it's all games at one site, I think it's just a colossal failure for a variety of reasons. I know it's, I know it's, I'm, I'm curious to hear your views on this. Cause I know from, from a TV production standpoint, I've talked to other producers and directors and they think it's the greatest thing ever because you get all the equipment in one place. You never have to move it. You can keep the production consistent. There's no challenges from that standpoint, but from a fan standpoint, one city cannot be exhausted to the point where they're the, the onus is on them to buy all the tickets to show up to all the matches all the time. And it's a bit phony as well to, to say the Vancouver Knights of Brampton yeah. or the Vancouver yeah. Knights of Toronto have won the championship. Like you have to have a genuine home base following or us in the American market specifically, people will see right through that. Nobody's going to buy into well, this phony concept of. Yeah, no, that's true. But I mean, that's part of developing a league like this, Peter. You can't, there have to be compromises made all the way along until there are proper venues. If the if the Vancouver team or the Seattle team or wherever it is who's playing in another ground, if they don't have their own venue, what are we going to do? We can't say, well, we're not going to include these guys. It's it's well, it's kind of a, a balance. And there shouldn't be a franchise you know? in Seattle. If they don't have their own ground, you know, yeah. you know we're seeing that baseball right now. No, if, that's if right. The city of Oakland yeah. doesn't want to build a new stadium for the A's, or the A's ownership doesn't want to finance yeah. privately financed their own stadium. Well, guess what? If they can't find a, a new suitable venue to replace the Oakland Coliseum, go in Oakland, somewhere where they can. Then yeah. they're they're going to go yeah. to Nashville, or they're going to go yeah. somewhere else, or Portland. Well, well, as you know, they're they're doing something in uh, well, Seattle is going to be built. You know, the the city of Seattle is putting in to to, to help with the venue, right? So. Yeah. Uh, the, and various other cities are too, but they all have to be multi-use venues. This is the reality of setting up a new, essentially a new sport. It's not a, really a new sport, as you and I have talked about, but it is for a lot of people. It's a new sport in the US. And there aren't any old grounds, many old grounds that can just be instantly referred to be economically viable, you know, at the, at the drop of a hat. That just can't happen. So in the meantime, to keep the interest levels up, they have to use what they have. And I can't really fault them too much for that. I mean, obviously, as as a producer of cricket in various parts of the world, I mean, I mean, I've done stuff at Lords. I mean, it's a little, it's, it's a lot easier for me to get things done there than it is in Prairie View. But we have what we have. It's and I'm not a big fan of putting a product out to the world where they're trying to promote cricket in the US, and it looks doesn't look right. For me, when you, when you say it doesn't attract, look right, you know, so, so what, you know, what do you mean by that specifically? Well, I mean, it doesn't, you're playing in grounds that, you know, the surface of the, you know, if you're playing on an, an artificial wicket somewhere, even in Philadelphia, I mean, that's lovely ground out there, the ground that where they play, yeah. but it's not a turf wicket and they've got various colors of covering on there and it's, it just doesn't look quite right. It looks too, as you know, the old saying, it looks very village. And so you're not uh, even talking in, from a from a TV production standpoint. You're not talking about general TV, but you're talking about just like the most basic element of cricket. If the ground doesn't look right and you project that yeah, on a TV vote, screen. Exactly. And we're we're sending that to people. We're asking people to pay uh, rights for us to send that to them. You want to give them a product that looks as close as to what they're expecting to see as 
normal now they have to have their expectations tempered a little bit too you know we can't have a grant we it's not every place isn't going to look like eden gardens but it's one of those things where it's important the look of the product that you're putting out there and some grounds are better than others let's just say that um morrisville's not perfect but it is a whole lot better than some of the other places we visited this summer and um you know the final product that we put out there i've had generally really good response from the the type of broadcast that, that came out of morrisville even though at normal cricket level we were restricted in resources as well but we try to make it look as good as possible and the end product is what is going to be judged upon when potential investors are either continually interested or they think no this is not worth it and go somewhere else so that's part of the problem with doing the broadcast for uh emerging leagues is that you try and have as good a product as possible to show potential investors and sponsors well let me ask you this morrisville is an incredibly challenging place to do a broadcast because there's no permanent infrastructure there when you yeah. bring your crew in you've got to bring in all sorts of trucks and yeah. try and put in temporary scaffolding towers to get cameras in the right positions and all that kind of thing right so yeah. even though the production element is probably 10 times more challenging than say a fixed venue like City Field for the All-Stars where you've got broadcast infrastructure and the wiring and all that for cameras. In your mind, what do you feel makes for a better production from a cricket standpoint, doing it at a genuine cricket venue like Morrisville where you have to jump through 20 hoops to set up all the broadcast things that you need to do from your end or City Field where it looks fancier because it's a stadium, but from a cricket standpoint, it's kind of half-assed in one sense. Well, I, there's no question. It's, it's I'll jump through all the hoops necessary to make it work at Morrisville. I mean, it, you know, because it looks like a cricket ground. And, I, you know, I'd rather go through the challenges of setting up the broadcast at a, at a venue that looks to be a cricket venue rather than an easier technically set up, technically speaking, set up at a ground that's not... A cricket, that's not a cricket ground so there's no no question about that so from, from that standpoint as a follow-up all right we've got the 2024 world cup coming up usa is supposed to go host it there's been talks of potentially games being staged at oakland coliseum if especially yeah. if, the, if the a's jump out of town and, the, and before the thing gets demolished to have one last hurrah yeah but for you, from your standpoint whether as a, a producer director on a cricket broadcast or as a fan of the sport in general what do you think would be more appealing or or better projection to the world of cricket in America and what American cricket is capable of sending out to the world and building on? Would you want to see more games being played and broadcast and produced in Morrisville and Lauderhill and um, potentially one other venue, whether that's Dallas, this Airhog Stadium that they're trying to convert, or one yeah. of the Houston venues? Or do you think it would be better to stage games with you know, Morrisville can only hold maybe 4,000 people, but it's a great ground versus Oakland Coliseum, which could have 55,000 people, but it's going to look very makeshift from a cricket standpoint. Yeah, I, look, I, I, it's arguments on both sides there, and I'll accept them both. But from my personal view, I'd rather be watching a game at that level at a cricket ground because the, the automatic assumption, if you're looking at, if you have, you might have 20 or 30 or 40,000 people. And I don't know if you'll get that at Oakland Coliseum anyway, but if you did, even if you did, 
the look of it, the first thing people are going to say, well, you know, this is this is a little bit, you know, second rate. If it's in a it's in a, a football ground or a baseball ground, they're not even serious about a cricket ground. Now that's to the casual observer, obviously, and to the cricket fanatic, it's obvious criticism. You're distracted by the fact that it's not a setup for cricket. Now, conversely, as you say, you can't, you know, the limited numbers that can be fit into a ground like Morrisville or upcoming Airhog Stadium or even even Prairie View. You've got obviously limitations there, but at least it looks like a cricket ground. And you know, Lauder Hill, for all its you know warts and all, um, you know, I've done a few things there over the years. It's again not perfect, but it's about as good as you can get at the current level of investment and an interest in cricket in the US. And it's a pity because ICC needs to have grounds if they're going to host serious games in the US. You know, going forward, they need grounds that, that can actually pass ICC level. I mean, when we were doing the uh, the first weekend of minor league, we did it at Woodley Park in Los Angeles. And I was doing the production from Utah. Uh, we had the small truck and our crew going around doing the uh, premium streams. Me and my part and business partner in Antares uh, Media, Kevin McGee and I were in Utah producing the show there. And I was... In between matches, the production manager said, oh, we've got someone here in the in the truck wants to talk to you. And it was Johnny Grave, who was the CEO of the Cricket West Indies. Yeah. And uh, he's an old friend and, and he wanted to know, well, how wasn't it the ground? And we explained to him the, the reality of doing this and the resources available. And he's very familiar with that being, in, in, being involved at Cricket West Indies. And he was on a trip, a tour around with the ICC people looking at potential venues for the uh, for the upcoming World Cup in 2024 and and he was at Woodley Park because we were playing the minor league there and I said well Johnny let me guess that Woodley Park won't be on the list and he goes yeah that's pretty much true you know and I said I was surprised to actually see them there but he was saying you know, privately that there hadn't been many that he saw that would make the grade so it shows you that it's a struggle but at least they're trying and i you know i think they they need to be applauded for that no 100 now going way back how does guy growing up in sydney and and in regional new south wales gosford you said he spent a lot of time in sydney but growing up in gosford new south wales how does a well, guy growing sheep- up on a sheep farm get involved in cricket production well, it, it's, geez, this is going to, I don't know how I can keep this um, compact, this discussion. Gosford is actually like a bedroom community of Sydney. It's not the farming area itself. It's about an hour north. It's mainly commuters to Sydney. We grew up as, it's a surfing culture. We grew up, me and my family grew up on the coast, surfing every day and fishing. But my dad's family came from further north in the northern tablelands of New South Wales uh, on a family farm that's been in our family since the 1880s. And it's known for uh, that the region is uh, the New England area of, uh, of New South Wales, it's called. And it's known for its super fine merino wool and, uh, and pole Hereford cattle. And uh, we've been involved in that all our lives. So we were, we were taken there rightly or wrongly every weekend or every other weekend or school holidays. And not unbeknownst to us at the time, uh, we learned about farming. We learned about grazing. Uh, raising animals, uh, doing all the things that happen. Now, now that it's been handed down to us, um, 
we're still doing it. My brother is still running our, my, our share of the farm there. My sister runs the other half with her husband and uh, we're continu we are continuing the, the family tradition. So I do go home a couple of times a year, as I say to my brother to pretend to help him a couple of times a year, but, um, but we, uh, we have fun. He's a, he's a cricket tragic as, as well, you know, cause we all grew up in a, in the cricketing family. My great, great grandfather played in the first ever New South Wales team. Now, it, that, there's some interesting stories about him as well. I mean, in those days in, in Sydney, you know, he was a bit of a larrikin. I mean, he played with the 12 years old. He was asked to play in the in the military team on the old side of St Andrew's Cathedral in Sydney. And they used to, at the time, it was a, it was a cemetery with the current side of the cathedral. And they used to move the headstones so they could have more room to play cricket. And of course, the cops weren't real happy with that. So... Uh, he spent a few days in the lockup as a 12 year old because he was caught moving headstones to play cricket. So it goes back and um, my mum's brother had a ground main named after him before he died, which is a rare, a rare honor in Australia. So he played grade cricket until he was in his sixties. So cricket goes way back in my family. She, she used to brag, my mum used to brag about uh, 1934 Australian touring team to, Australia, to England where the radio stations used to put on a competition. If you could pick the, pick the touring team, you'd, you'd win a prize. And of course, in later years, it was you tour with the team. But in the 1930s, it wasn't quite so, uh, so extraordinary. She picked the team that included Arthur Chipperfield in the team. And of course, for some reason, she loved it. She was a 13-year-old girl. And for some reason, she liked this guy. And he got picked in the squad. She won it. And, the and her prize was a guided tour of the radio station. So she, she took great pride in telling us about that all our lives. So we had a, um, we had, I were very fortunate doing, having a life in sort of rural area as well as urban area blend. It was great. Um, after I, I kind of got into the broadcast business more so in the US than in Australia. I was working on feature films there from, a, from an aviation background. I was an Air Force pilot and I got out of there and I was, you know, I taught people to fly for a while and was hired, hired in a film logistics company in Australia. And we used to send, at the time, there was a lot of investment in film in Australia by the government. They were offering big tax breaks. So there were a lot of films being made in the eighties in Australia, including Crocodile Dundee, which I have a credit on. And, uh, and you know, I did over 50 feature films and then I moved to the US and the type of work I'd been doing on in film business in Australia didn't really exist here. So I sort of gravitated towards TV and, and have come all the way since. I started out as a, a spotter for the ABC Sports in 1992 US Open at Pebble Beach and worked my way through the through the compound, essentially every job there was going as a graphics operator, as a graphics coordinator, highlights, uh, highlights producer, uh, or working all the way up through uh, producer and, and director. So I've done a lot of golf, a lot of cricket, 10, 10 Olympics, a couple of Emmys on the shelf. And I feel fairly gratified that um, you know, I've kind of made it work as well as I could in the US, but I was always cricket starved. That's my point then, Peter. I, always had to gravitate towards the cricket turn down jobs now to, so I can do cricket I've just come off the US Open tennis and directing for you for ESPN and there was a talk it was a cricket event supposed to be happening in uh, in Canada at the time 
and I was tossing up whether I'd turn down the US Open as a home game, you know, five minutes from my house and go to Canada to do cricket, but my wife uh, made me see sense. The lot's one pack there. Which is a bigger point yeah. of pride for you, having a credit in Crocodile Dundee or all the sports <laughs> stuff? Um, I think directing cricket at Lords, I'd rather have than a, than a credit on Crocodile Dundee or, or the Emmys. So, uh, you know, that's for me, it's, a, it's all about the cricket and having done so many years in the Caribbean, you know, and I've made so many friends down there with uh, some of the former players and announcers. And, you know, I'm happy to happy to say I gave a lot of them their first go in, in broadcast TV. And, you know, that's very gratifying for me to, to call some of these people friends. Guys that I used to just watch playing cricket couldn't believe how good they were when they toured Australia. And I'd be, in, you know, I'd be part of the raucous crowd in Australia drinking beers and, and you know, hoping Australia would beat the West Indies. But these guys were just incredible. You know, I, you know, I was one of the guys in back in the '60s, and you know, back in the black and white days, Peter, listening in on the transistor radio on my bed at the Australian tour of the West Indies. Couldn't believe that so far away and on the other side of the world they could be playing cricket while it's two o'clock in the morning in Australia. So uh, you know, just just captivated it captivated me the entire time. And I guess I'm still a big kid in that in that respect. One of the other things you touched on, there's an awful lot of parts of a broadcast and working your way up through the industry in different roles. And when I was first getting into kind of broadcasting stuff way back when, there is such a thing as a sports broadcasting camp. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Peter Steve, but Bruce Beck and I, <laughs> Eagle, uh, Bruce Beck, who is, you, you know, a friend of mine, Bruce, yeah. Bruce, yep. Bruce Beck. I yep. was, uh, Bruce Beck and I and Eagle run a sports broadcasting camp at a Montclair state university. Yeah. And, um, I was in their second year, their second batch. And then, uh, I was an intern for them for, I can't remember if I did it for one or two summers, but, um, at their camp, it's all these teenage kids, high school graduating kids, yeah. and first year college who, have dreams of being a sports broadcaster and they go to this camp at Montclair state and it's at the Yogi Berra museum at Montclair state university that Bruce yep, Beck I'm very familiar. Yeah. You know all about it. So um, I was there and one of the things they told me was never say no, you get an opportunity, any part of the broadcast, yep, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to be doing play by play from day one. So no, that's right. you get offered something to say yes. So when I went to Creighton and I was working in the athletic department as my work study job, I mean, one of the first things I did, I was a flag runner, you know, for, for the marketing team. They needed somebody to run the flag to lead the, the basketball team onto the court at, after the, uh, you know, the sizzle video, the pump up video, you know, three minutes before the start of the tip off and all that. Um, I did the same thing. For and the then soccer. a red hat, I'm sure. You, you were, I guess you were a red hat at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the flag was scary because it, it's so unbalanced when you're running with it. If you don't kind of tilt it forward as you're running, you can take a tumble oh, geez. and that, that was the, that was you well in your broadcast career <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you know that was the the biggest the scariest thing i've ever done in broadcasting or to do with a game production in in-house or television was running a flag onto the field because the only thing that was going through my mind was if i trip and fall or if the weight the wind knocks me over i'm gonna fall on my face in front of twenty thousand people yeah. and they're all gonna laugh at me <laughs> I'll never and it'll, it'll make the ESPN highlights real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was my ticket. Maybe I should have done it. Maybe I should have just yeah. a strategic tumble. Could have could have made it on not yeah. top 10. But yeah. um, one of the early things I did in terms of the Creighton broadcast productions that that were either in-house or or to the, the 
whether it was the local sports affiliates or if it was the Big East Network or, you know, prior to that, Missouri Valley Conference, whatever, was, you know, I, I worked camera. So first I worked the end zone camera and the soccer games, and it was it was tracking corner kicks and, you know, ball tracking from there if there was something interesting. Yeah. I mean, then it was – I was good enough on that where I got promoted to do the the ball fall from the center, you know, the 50-yard line, whatever, mid, midfield, doing the ball fall camera. And so doing camera operating work, and then there was – other parts of, of different productions that was on where I remember doing baseball games where we sat in a truck or some other vantage point and whoever was doing graphics didn't have a view of the field. And so something as simple as me relaying to a graphics person, ball strike, ball strike. Every time there was a ball strike, yeah. I had to tell them what the call was. So then they could, you know, people think it's automatic. Uh, oh, I, on the yeah. screen, you know, they just add, you know, yeah, they, you have to update the graphic. Yeah. You got to update the graphic. Somebody's updating it. It's not automatic. Yeah. They, they, they do it yeah. physically. And I had to be the one through a headset to tell them, you know, ball strike, ball strike to tell them so they could change the count manually on screen, all that kind of thing. Um, I did other stat. I was a, a stats crew person, um, again, doing statistical work and helping out with entering statistical graphics in for Rockets. So I got to do various roles before I got an opportunity to do play by play. And so I got an appreciation for all the different aspects the of the jobs. broadcast. Yeah. And there's there's so many nuanced things and so many people were part of the team. And the transitions, you know, one, one of the other things I did was um, at basketball games, I was the, uh, I worked the stadium, the, the, essentially the sound machine. I was like a de facto DJ where, you know, te- the, the, you know, obviously- The in-house PA. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Well, no, so it was it's kind of like a two-pronged thing. I sat next to the stadium PA announcer. And I had the the sound effects and all that control. So like if he was oh, going to okay. read yeah. a, a promo to over the PA, I had to communicate with him to sh- lower the music or shut off the music. If it was, you know, Zombie Nation or some other pump up song, you know, Creighton goes on a 12-0 run, you know, Villanova at the, at the time would have been Missouri State or Illinois State or Indiana State calls a timeout. You know, boom, second whistle blows, referee, yeah. I'm hitting zombie nation, you know, everybody's going bonkers, whatever. And, but then at some point I've got to kind of lower the music levels a little bit. So the PA analogy can read, you know, that 70th point yeah. means Godfather's pizza, you know, all that kind of nonsense, whatever. Yeah. So there's so many things that go into it and behind the scenes. And you, you, you said you got to work your way up when you were working yeah. your way up. What was your favorite role? of all the kind of different roles you had behind the scenes leading up to what you do now? Jeez, I had never really thought about that. I, I got to say, probably way back when starting as a spotter, walking with the golfers in a US Open, literally walking inside there with the golfers. So I would be talking back to the truck to say, just telling them who's hitting first. It was like being paid to be, you know, the greatest spectator there was. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on you because you don't want to get yelled at if you give them the wrong, the wrong information, but it was the greatest thing ever. And then when you get into the truck itself and you're doing graphics or you're doing audio or you're doing highlights or whatever, there's even more pressure on you. There's more and more pressure each job to get you go along with. But i got to say that was probably the most enjoyable, uh, to be quite honest. I mean, now, you know, directing some of these big shows, you got to make sure that the people you have around you are the ones that you want and you feel most comfortable with, which is, you know, which is part of the art of, of putting on a good broadcast is making sure all the people around you are much better than you are. And uh, that's always, you know, that's always a gra- very gratifying, but, you know, in terms of pure fun, walking with, walking with um, Ernie Els or Tiger or whatever, that's, that was one of the most fun things. Now that doesn't relate to cricket broadcasting because you don't get to do that. 
you know, you can hang out with the players while they're warming up, or you can, you know, maybe have a beer with the hotel after after work. You know, during the Stanford series, that was one of the great things. Back in 2007, I produced, you know, the Alan Stanford's T20 Caribbean, Caribbean style, and uh, we all stayed at the, they had employed all these former players as legends to be just to be hanging around, you know, so it was Viv Richards and it was Kurtley Ambrose and it was Joel Garner and it was all these guys that were just the guys that you love to watch and that was fun too, that was not part of the broadcast but it was fun ha hanging out drinking beers with uh, Courtney Walsh and, and Viv Richards, you know, that part of it is good being a fanboy but um you know the the most fun part for the uh, going through the motions of getting to where I am now, I think, was the the uh, at the outset where there was where you knew very little about what was going on in the truck, but you just wanted to make sure you gave the right information while you were watching the golf. Well, Peter Steep just opened up Pandora's box by name dropping Alan Stanford there, and that's going to take up a good portion of part two of the interview with Peter Steep, where he goes in depth discussing what it was like to work for Alan Stanford on the broadcast production side of the Stanford 2020 tournament, and subsequently the 2020 for 20 million dollar match against England, and all things to do with Alan Stanford regardless of the notorious crime dealings that Alan Stanford was eventually convicted for. So it's definitely worth listening to or watching if you access the podcast on YouTube or on Spotify or Anchor FM. This is one of the more compelling interviews you'll listen to, especially because there's not an awful lot of people who have really spoken publicly about what it was like to work for Alan Stanford in that time frame on the cricket side of things. So be sure to tune into that. I want to once again remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, go to patreon.com, become a patriot, become an eagle, become a captain, support the podcast on an episode-by-episode -episode basis. And as I just mentioned, all the other avenues to get the latest episode of the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, if you haven't already subscribed through any of those platforms be sure to do so but until next time that's it for this episode i'm peter delapenner reminding everybody god bless america and god bless american cricket